Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 19th, 2019. That would be 41919-41919. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Monster Show of the Week. I got a great lineup here for you. With the TSPC Expert Council, here's what we got on deck for you today. Spring Chicken Dishes with Chef Keith Snow. The effects on probiotics when taking antibiotics with the old man himself, Old Doc Bones. Making a raspberry small mead with the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. A finance and investing lightning round. Four questions answered inside the time frame I give those guys by the man himself, John Pugliano. Solar options for your car, but not really for your car. For those that car camp, does it make sense to have solar power with you? And what is the best ROI in that world from Sean Mills of HackMySolar.com? Dealing with picky eaters from Mike and Sue Laprise. We'll... Uh, Let them tell you your their, their take on this. And I will talk about the plate on top of the refrigerator technique, because that's what worked for me, um, and an update on the Simpson Farm and the grass-fed life from Darby Simpson. Darby's got some amazing things going on he's going to tell you about today. Uh, how about a pastured chicken operation? Not his, but one he's working with. Producing 500,000 chickens a year using pastured Poultry methodology. Not a, a chicken house of horrors. Pastured poultry, half a million birds a year. And I know some people are like, wow, that's like really a big operation. If we are going to convert the United States food system to something that is not just sustainable but regenerative, that's the type of numbers we need. And Darby's going to tell you how it's actually being done. And then I have a question I will be taking on dealing with dogs that want to eat power tools and firearms. And I don't mean just because they're sitting around, but because they're moving. And I'll tell you my favorite training aid. We've talked about it before, the dog tra training collar. But this is a great one because I can actually say not only does this work, but here's a dog that did the exact same thing, and here's what I did to teach him to not eat the weed eater, the chainsaw, etc. So we will get to all of that more in just a moment. I have a couple announcements I want to make right now. Number one, I need your Jack, you're a jerk calls. I'm not getting a ton of them. I feel like I might have waited too long. Episode 2500 is only about 25 episodes away. Is that right? We have 20, 24 episodes away. And I need you to call me and tell me I'm a jerk. You have to call the jerk line to do that. Here I will give you the number yet again to the jerk line. You can reach the jerk line, and it's worth calling just to hear the way I, I, I leave you a message when you call. You can reach it at 877-644-1345. Call up, say, hey, Jack, you're a jerk, and here's why, and tell me all the good things that are going on in your life from the TSP podcasting communities and sub-communities, and let's make 2500 a great episode. Next, I want to remind you guys that Paul Wheaton uh, still has his Kickstarter running. It is funded to the gills. His goal was like 8K. He's like well over 30 or 40K now. 
Um, but it's because it's such an awesome Kickstarter. It's something you can get involved in, and it's about global solutions in your own backyard. In other words, what can you do in your own backyard to live in a regenerative way and also live in luxury instead of just being mad at bad guys and call on the government for political solutions? There's a link in today's show notes, and Paul's a good dude, man. There's some things Paul and I have really bumped heads with over the years, and there's sometimes, Paul, I'm just like, God, Paul, why? Why? But I'm going to tell you what. The man is a good dude. He puts out good stuff, and this is probably the most important thing he's done in about the 10 years that I've known him. So check it out. Again, Global Solutions in Your Own Backyard. Link in today's show notes. And the link's going out in the Daily Mail. So I want to remind you guys, if you're not on my email list, subscribe. Dude, it's easy. Go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click subscribe, fill out the form, get on the email list, and you'll get all kinds of stuff in addition to what you hear on the air. Insider information, things like that. But this is the good part. You will get one email a day, Monday through Friday. I almost never email anything on the weekends. It's a simple text email. I don't put a bunch of crap in it. It's like item one, item two, item three, whatever. And it's this thing, and here's a link. And if you're interested, you click it. If not, you don't. Uh, I don't ever give away information. I do not share my email list. You cannot pay me to email something to my list for you. I don't do that. I believe in privacy, and I believe in taking care of my people. So uh, please consider being on the email list because it will help you find out things that you will not find out otherwise. And then the uh, last thing before we dig into today's show, yesterday's show on life skills got a tremendous amount of positive feedback. And yet again, another person asking me if I would share tutorials, how-tos, or even maybe do an entire podcast I'm using Microsoft Excel because as boring as it might sound to some people, Microsoft Excel is one of the most powerful tools readily available to human beings on planet Earth today. But here's the thing about Microsoft Excel. I like in Excel and the ability to make worksheets and workbooks in Excel to if I came to you and gave you a full set of power tools. Let's say I gave you a circular saw, a jigsaw, a drill, an impact driver, a nail gun. You get it. Like every cordless power tool you can get, and here it is. Now, if I give that to one person, they can build a, a spice rack. Another person can build a bookshelf. Another person could build an add-on room to a house. Another person can custom build a house, right? And somebody else might nail their hand to the wall, right? I mean, that's... That's reality, right? You know, or cut their hand off with a hole saw on the, on the drill or something. I, you know, I don't know. And it's all about, okay, the tools are awesome, but the application of the tools is the key. The problem with me doing a show on Microsoft Excel is I like having 200,000 listeners to this show. I don't want to have five. And I really feel like if I sat here and droned on about Microsoft Excel in a how-to format for an hour, that, like... I, I, my unsubscriptions the next day would boggle the mind. It is that boring to talk about it that way. It is exciting what it can do, but it's not really exciting to discuss. The other thing is it's highly visual. And a lot of the basics are really like, you know, this is a cell, this is a column, this is a row, this is a sequence. Like, it's just, it's hard to explain anyway. Not only is it boring, it's hard to explain. If you understood what I was saying, you wouldn't need to know. Because you'd already know. It's the only way you'd understand if it was an audio. So I racked my brain a little bit, and I was like, there has to be a good Excel course or something like that. I can recommend this a few bucks or something. And I also checked free ones on YouTube. And a lot of free shit on YouTube is just, it's not that there's anything wrong with it. 
It's perfect for people like me. I'm trying to do this one thing that I can't figure out how to do after using Excel for 20 years. So I know exactly what to search for. How do I blank? And then there's a video, and the guy talks for five minutes of rambling crap, and I skip ahead, skip ahead. Oh, you do that. Okay, boom, and I, I'm done, and I'm good. But then what about the person that opens up Excel and goes, I don't know what to do. I don't even know what it can do. So I found this course. It is, it is pretty awesome. It's on a uh, channel. Uh, that is called, let me see, Technology for Students and Teachers. They have just under a quarter million subscribers, and the guy has a 35-video playlist that starts out with opening up a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet and explaining what it is and what the basics, the most basics are, all the way to incredibly advanced functions for presentation-level stuff and things like that, and you can go through it at any speed you want to. This is why I'm recommending it as the resource that I would recommend for people to get started. Well, number one is, I people say, why don't you give us your spreadsheet on uh, cars or give us your spreadsheet on housing or whatever, because then you won't learn anything, and you won't know how to alter it, and you won't know what it can do, and it's built for me, and it's not built for you, and you'll have to change things you don't know how to change, and I, I want to teach you how to fish. I don't want to give you a fish, that type of thing. Um, so we need to have something that can start with, this is what a cell is, right? and this is how we understand and define a cell, and this is how we take two cells and link them together and all that stuff. But we also need something that will take you advanced enough to be able to realize how to build the house. Well, when I started listening to this guy, this is what I was thinking. Even in the most basic stuff, since I'm almost 100% self-taught, I should learn something. So I listened to like the first three and a half of videos, and I did it the way I do when it's something like this. I don't need to watch a guy explain to me what a cell is. I know what a cell is. So I just opened another tab, and I'm doing my work and my write-ups, and I'm listening to it in the background. And you have that moment where you're like, wait, what? You can do what? So you flip over and rewind it 30 seconds and watch it. You're like, oh, wow, now I can do that. And after three or four of those things in the basic videos, since I've been using Excel in earnest since 1998, I'm like, okay, this guy's good. He's, 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 he's not boring. He's clear. He's articulate. He knows his shit. So I'm recommending this course. I put out a, um, a post about it today. And you can read that or whatever or just you know click the link. I'll have a link in today's show notes to where I – um, did uh, did that write up for you so that you guys can find it. I, I cannot emphasize how valuable this tool is. It is incredible for any of you with kids that are thinking about college. If you do not do a financial analysis of the cost of college, you are cheating your child. I'm not saying they shouldn't go. I'm saying you should do a financial analysis and understand what you're doing, and so should they. For they sign a piece of paper that then indebts them for the rest of their lives. And the way I'll put it is, it takes a bit of time to get into your head what Excel can do for you. But with Excel, you can do more than build a house. You can build a financial model so that you can buy a house. That's about as powerful as it gets. Or buy that dream property that you want. Or build that business model that you want. That's the power of Excel. That's why I recommend it so highly. And this is the best free resource I've found. I would put it this way. Again, I don't know these people. I haven't talked to these people. I don't get shit from these people. I don't want anything from them. I just think it's a fantastic resource. But I feel like if you went and bought this course for $199 at Udacity or something like that, you'd take the course, you'd consider it money well spent, and you'd go on with your life with a new skill. But you can have it for free. Again, I highly recommend it. Link in today's show notes. With that, let us delve, shall we, into the expert counsel 
segments this week, and let's lead off with Chef Keith Snow making you hungry, talking about a spring chicken dish. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and the Harvest Eating Podcast. Wanted to answer a quick question about chicken dishes, and these are um, the type that would be considered sort of spring dishes. So what I have for you is something quite simple. It's super delicious, like a creamy Parmesan chicken with lemon, and uh, it doesn't take much time to make it at all. Now, I would take... Um, some chicken breasts. If you can get the kind that still have the skin on them, that would be great. So, you know, skin on chicken breast, kind of like a split chicken breast. What you're going to do is take a little bit of all-purpose flour and you're going to first season the chicken breasts with salt and pepper and lemon zest. So take a microplane and get some of the zest off the lemon and press it onto the chicken all over it. So lemon zest, salt and pepper. Then you're going to just toss it in flour very quickly, trying not to um, scrub off all the seasoning you just put on there. Some will fall off, but that's not a problem. And then um, you're just going to take those chicken breasts They should have a very, very, very light coating of flour, hardly anything. And for those that are watching the carbs, um, you're really talking about, you know, maybe it's a quarter teaspoon of flour, half a teaspoon um, in the whole thing. Not a big deal. So then in a good quality, I would say like an enameled cast iron or a good stainless steel skillet, I'd put down about a quarter cup of extra virgin olive oil and three pats of butter. Swirl that around. When it gets nice and hot, you're going to lay your chicken breasts into the pan, and I would do it skin side down, and I would cook it you know, on about a medium, medium-high heat for roughly 10 minutes until um, you get quite a bit of golden brown color. Then you're going to flip it over, cook it for about another five minutes, and then you're going to put in heavy cream. And you want some good quality heavy cream to put in there. And I would suggest about one cup of heavy cream. So pour heavy cream in there, and then I'm going to take one garlic clove that's been smashed and minced, toss that in there. And what you're going to do is um, let this start to reduce. So as the cream starts to reduce out a bit, then you're going to put in about a half a cup of chicken broth and let that be one you made, if at all possible. So continue this process of reducing and the cream is going to thicken up and it's everything is going to become quite wonderful. Now, I would take some basil leaves and mince those up and towards the end toss the whole um, dish with you know maybe eight or ten basil leaves that have been kind of chiffonaded or sliced up so toss those in there with a little bit of lemon zest and then take you know four or five lemon slices and just toss it in there and just keep the whole thing moving around and as it reduces the garlic the lemon all that is going to really flavor the cream now towards the end you're going to take three quarters of a cup of i would say my favorite cheese for this would be a um something like a Locatelli Pecorino Romano. Now, this is a sheep's milk milk cheese. It's very sharp and bright. It's wonderful stuff. So toss that over. You certainly could throw in here um, some baby spinach if you'd like, and that would just wilt down right in the sauce. And just continue cooking this until the chicken breasts are quite firm. You just press down the thickest part with your finger. It should not feel raw or squishy. It should be kind of firm. And... 
If you do this uncovered, then you're going to have a beautiful cream sauce and you just serve this on a plate. I would garnish it with a couple of uh, whole basil leaves and maybe some freshly sliced lemon wedges. And this is a delicious dish. Now, you could also, being that we're into spring, um, about halfway through, you could take asparagus tips. Um, I love the tips of the asparagus, and I usually will make soup with the rest of them. But cut off the tips and toss those in there. And remember to give the whole thing um, some salt and pepper. And you're going to have an incredible dish that I like to serve something like this. And I'll do more than – I'll do like eight or nine um, chicken breasts. Sometimes I'll get the airline chicken breasts that have the you know skin on and a little bit of the wing – um, bone into them, kind of old school, but really great presentation. Serve that on a platter. So take your chicken out, put it on a nice platter, and then spoon this reduced creamy, cheesy, lemony mixture over the top. And I got to tell you, it is a delicious feast. And again, for those of you that are watching the carbs, this is got quite a bit of fat in it, very little carbohydrates. So I would uh, consider it keto friendly and certainly delicious. So I hope it inspires you guys and gals out in TSP land to check it out. Um, and for those of you that are interested in the harvest eating podcast and harvest eating in general, just a quick note that I've been doing quite a bit of work outside the house for a major ski resort out in Utah called Sundance acting as the food and beverage director. So haven't been adding as much content um, as I like, but I'm going to be active again on Instagram. It's Instagram.com slash Harvest Eating, and do check out my podcast. I usually will try to put up an episode about twice a month, although I've not been good at it recently, but that's the commitment. So, Jack, thanks for letting me contribute, and thanks for everybody out there. Hope you're all well. Take care. So so here's my only add to this fantastic sounding now I'm hungry uh, idea or, or dish or recipe um, when it comes to chicken and this type of kind of delicate light fare if I have my choice I'm going to use a skin a, a skin on bone in thigh over a breast because it will you can cook it longer without drying it out for one thing it has more flavor than the breast even past your chicken to me the breast lacks in flavor when we make a light dish with it. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying, right? So, um, skin on thigh, fantastic for this. It also will cook quicker for you, etc. Um, and my personal opinion, again, this is my opinion, when you're doing whole birds that you're buying because there's a, a financial advantage or you're, you're raising your own birds or whatever and breaking them down, one of the best things to do with your your breast meat is more, this is for your, your enchiladas, your chicken tacos, things that are highly seasoned because that breast meat will wonderfully take up that seasoning. And also then you're breaking down that breast to smaller cuts of meat, which means you can cook it hot and fast and, and have less of you know either an undone or overcooked chicken or you know pounded out type like chicken cutlet type dishes and stuff is what I prefer to do with my breast but that's just me and just a suggestion next up i have a question for doc bones on you know you got to take antibiotics and you wipe out the probiotics and now what old man what do you do hi joe alton md here also known as dr bones of www.doomandbloom.net where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, 
the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, the brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from David, who writes, Quick question for you, Doc Bones, or Nurse Amy, if old age finally got Doc. Well, David, I'm old, but I'm not frail. What would you advise to get healthy bacteria back in line after antibiotics? Is one kind better than another kind? I recently had an injury and was put on clindamycin. After about five days, it looked like I was starting to get an infection. Wow, on the antibiotic? That's terrible. And doxycycline was added, so two antibiotics. Once the doxycycline is finished, what do you advise for a round of probiotics? Looks to me, and I see my doc in a few days, to be healing up nicely, and the infection seems to be slowly going away. So I think I'm going to make it, although I can now only count to 9 and 15 sixteenths as a small piece of my finger is missing. Ouch, David. Wow. David, having written a book about antibiotics just recently, it's clear to me that the wise use of these drugs can save lives, but taking them is not without consequences. The problem with antibiotics is that they destroy not only the bad bacteria, but they also wipe out a lot of good bacteria as well. You actually have 10 times more bacterial cells in your body than you have human cells, so that's a lot. They help by breaking down food and keeping your intestinal tract healthy. If you kill the good bacteria, they can compromise your gut, giving one in three takers of antibiotics diarrhea and having negative effects on your body's immunity, digestion, and ability to detoxify. Of course, if you notice any significant side effects from antibiotics, you should always contact your medical provider. Fortunately, there are ways to replace your body's good bacteria after taking antibiotics. Ingesting, as you suggest, probiotics is one of them. The 2012 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that taking probiotics can indeed reduce antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Probiotics found in food like yogurt are live healthy bacteria and other microorganisms that help repopulate the microbes in your intestines. The yogurt label should always say live and active cultures. Sour cream and buttermilk may be helpful as well. Now, if you prefer to drink your probiotics, you can try kefir, which is a creamy dairy-based drink that's made when healthy bacteria, mostly lactobacillus and streptococcus, and yeast are introduced into milk. The fermented product is similar in taste to yogurt, except that it's a liquid. If dairy doesn't treat you well, you can certainly consider foods like fresh sauerkraut and kimchi, both come from fermented cabbage and contain probiotics as well. Another option is fermented pickle relish. You can also drink kombucha, which is a tea that uses the fermentation of sugar by bacteria and yeast to get its probiotics. Of course, there are plenty of probiotic supplements on the market if you can't take the time to adjust your diet. They're available in powder, capsule, and other forms, but make sure you check the instructions for storage. Some need refrigeration. It's important to realize that since probiotics are usually bacteria themselves, they can also be killed by antibiotics if taken together. Always take your meds and your probiotics a few hours apart. After a course of antibiotics, high-fiber foods may help stimulate the growth of healthy gut bacteria. Foods that contain dietary fiber are not only able to stimulate the growth of healthy bacteria, but they also reduce the growth of some harmful bacteria. Consider whole grains, nuts, seeds, beans, lentils, berries, 
broccoli, peas, bananas, and artichokes. Too much fiber, however, can interfere with the absorption of antibiotics. Therefore, it's best to temporarily avoid high-fiber foods during treatment and focus on eating them after your course of therapy is over. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of the third edition of our Survival Medicine Handbook and our new book, Alden's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, remember, the Member Support Brigade gets 10% off anything at our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Next, I got a question for Michael Jordan on making a raspberry mead that won't, well, knock you out after two or three glasses. We would call that a small mead or a session mead. And I know Michael has some ideas on that. So, Michael, let's make some mead, man. I'm Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I'm taking your calls and questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Today, we're in the underground meadery, taking a question from Robert. Robert's question is, I would like a recommendation for a mead recipe that incorporates raspberries with another flavor but keeps the alcohol percentage low. I'm planning on making a mead for a good friend who's always taste testing my concoctions and creations but never enjoys them because I make them dry with high alcohol volume. I've never made a raspberry so I was curious if you could recommend a flavor pairing to go with it and procedures to keep the alcohol volume lower than 12%. Thanks for taking the question, and it was great to meet you at the TSP 10-year workshop, Robert. Well, Robert, my man, I'm glad you came to the TSPC Survival Podcast 10-Year Meetup and Drink Workshop. <laughs> It was a super good time, and I hope you enjoyed the meads that I was able to share with the group. Jack throws a good time, and I'm glad you were a part of it. A fruit mead is also known as a marmel. Adding fruit to a mead is pretty common to lending extra flavor to a mead. Raspberry is one of the most popular fruits added to a mead. The raspberry mead is all so common that it's earned its own name, a rudel, R-U-D. M-E-L, Arubadel. Raspberry mead ingredients are simple. Raspberry, honey, yeast, and water. When choosing raspberries for mead making, it's better that you go fresh raspberries. Raspberries should be plump, dry, firm, well-shaped, and uniformly colored. Avoid purchasing berries that are withered or crushed. Rinse the raspberries gently to wash off the dust. Let them dry a little bit in the air and then put them in the freezer overnight. The liquid in the last raspberries will crystallize and break the cell wall of the raspberries, which will help release the flavors. If you do not have time to do all that work or you just don't want to wait, frozen raspberry packages in the freezer by your nearby supermarket will probably be your best friend. Grab a bag and let's get ready to rock and roll. So let's make a mead. This is a sweet Still marmel intended to use as a dessert wine. Here are your ingredients. You're going to need 4.5 pounds of raw wildflower honey. 1.5 pounds 
of red raspberries, juice of one lemon, juice of one orange, three tablespoons of a strong brewed black English tea, and of course, a good water and about one U.S. gallon of it. The fermentation should use Yeast Lab Sweet Mead Yeast M62. It's called, I think it's called this uh, Steinberg Riesling, I believe is what it's called. Now, you want to get raspberries that were frozen to keep the breakdown of the cell's walls, and you want to crush your raspberries by hand in plastic bags while thawing. The lemon and orange juice will provide the acids, and the tea will provide the tannins. What you want to do is pour your honey in your fermentation device and add the berries, the tea, and the juices from the fruit. Add water to bring the volume of the must up to the appropriate level. Pitch the yeast into the must. And I just pour the liquid yeast into the must without making a starter. All my stuff, if I'm using dry yeast, I just drop the dry yeast in. And if I'm using a liquid yeast, it's already ready to start. And I usually just drop it right in. You want the fermentation to be about at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, a word of advice that I've learned from previous experiences, if you're using a carboy as your primary fermentator, use one with a lot of extra head space. Or use a wide blow-off tube. If you do not, the raspberry pulp will foam up and this will plug up air locks. One reason why I kind of like the balloon. This will cause pressure buildup and pop the stopper off the carboy and spray your walls, floors, ceilings, everything around it with sticky raspberry stuff. I also have heard that if you do not have a good adequate blow off, your carboy could explode, leaving an even bigger mess. So one reason why you should use a balloon for your primary or a big blow-off tube into a bucket of water. That way it bubbles in the bucket of water and blows all the rest of the residual in that bucket. Now you want to rack off about three weeks uh, when the fruit is pulp has settled and ready to kind of burst up and look kind of yicky. And then rack again at two months four months, and six, and bottle about the eighth month. The mead has probably cleared and has finished fermenting by racking it by month six. During the last two months of the fermentation, there was no airlock activity at all, usually in my mead, and nothing is settled, and everything is probably settled out. I waited for an extra two months to be sure that the fermentation was completed. There was still some residual sugar, and I didn't want it to, you know, ferment in the bottles. Popping the lids off, or things of that nature. I really think that you will enjoy this award-winning mead. It has great color, aroma, and taste, and it should help you with your friend's taste for a sweeter mead with bold flavors. I'm really hoping this helps you out on your mead-making skills. I'm not going into great in-depth detail about it due to the fact that you are making meads and you're getting the basic concepts. If you're catching on YouTube our 52 meads in a year, you've probably got some great information between yeasts, books, fermentation device, and even some crazy meads that we make 
like Xenophobe. I think these are some things that you should look into. Catch us on 52 Meads in the Year on YouTube. Catch us at the Underground Meadery on Facebook. Email me at abfriendlycompany at gmail.com. And I can try to answer your questions the best I can. I'm glad that you were able to go to Jack's. And I really hope this helps you out on a great adventure of making some more fine meads. I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small cottage company for a better product. And from someone just starting out to help them get it out there. And always, as I keep repeating myself, help your fellow man. Because one day, just like recently, uh, myself needed help too. Thank you very much for your questions and turning in to the Survival Podcast. Okay, so Michael is keeping the alcohol down by making a sweet meat, making a raspberry dessert meat. Nothing wrong with that. You guys know me. I'm more into the dry type of thing and bringing these other flavors. So what I'm about to give you is a recipe for what we would call a small mead um, that is more of something that you can drink with a little bit more abandon, more like you might drink a, a hard cider, a higher gravity hard cider, uh, but not, you know, not something that's up in the 16% range that has you seeing raspberry stars. We're also going to pair raspberry with something that just, it's almost like these two things are meant to go together. And then we are going to perk it up by carbonating it. Again, this is a recipe to the gallon. You're going to use about 14 ounces of raspberries. You can use a pound if you want to. The reason I settled on 14 for this is I do use frozen raspberries from the store. And just like everything else, manufacturers have started cutting weight to keep the price the same. And most of the frozen raspberry bags, I find, have 14 ounces in them. So there you go. You're going to use 14 ounces of those raspberries. I don't, I don't mash them. I don't defrost them. I throw them in the fermenter, frozen. Just right into my fermenter. This is, again, a gallon fermenter. And I pour enough hot water over them to cover them. That will pasteurize them. And I'm boiling water from the kettle because it's going to cool down right away. And you're going to add one, just one and a half pounds, one and a half pounds of honey. Now you can make, you can scale this up and make a five gallon batch out of it. And then you're going to also add about a half an ounce of grated fresh ginger, raspberry and ginger. That's why there's such a thing as raspberry ginger ale. And that's kind of what we're making here. We're making a dry, hard raspberry ginger ale and we're going to ferment that and if you feel the need to add some lemon zest or something like that for some more acid you can but there's quite a bit of acid in the raspberries and we're going to use the same crazy yeast combination that i always recommend the cuvee and the pastor blanc together it is going to ferment out amazingly fast there is plenty of nutrients in those raspberries to accelerate fermentation, and you're not asking the yeast to do anything close to their limit. You're going to end up with a very dry raspberry ginger ale type product. Um, and then we're going to do the same thing we always do. We're going to rack out of that primary, and we're going to top to a full gallon when we do with clean filtered water, and we're going to let it clear. We are then going to bottle, carbonate, or if you're making a big batch, you can keg carbonate. And I won't talk about how to carbonate today. You can look that up if you're not sure how to do it. And we're going to make a sparkling, dry 
raspberry ginger mead. I made this exact episode, uh, um, version um, a few years ago at one of my workshops. I made five gallons of it. I put it in a Cornelius keg in my kegerator. There were three other things in that kegerator, and I think they floated the raspberry mead on the first night. Uh, it was it was a pretty big hit. It's something I've been needing to make again. I probably should get off my ass to make 10 gallons of it for this fall. I, I really should. I should probably squirrel some bottles of it away. It won't age as beautifully as your higher gravity meads that I am more likely to make that are in the neighborhood of three pounds of honey to the gallon, but it will age just fine for a year or two as well, and it does get it does get better, but it will lose some of the upfront brightness. So that's what I do. Again, I don't crush raspberries or any frozen fruit, and I always, 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 infinity, whether I get it fresh or not, I always freeze my fruit before I make a mead out of whole fruit because it does exactly what Jordan said. All right, next up, we got a lightning round from John Pugliano. Four questions within the time frame because he's just that good. John, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. Today I'm going to do a lightning round and attempt to answer four questions. And so I do want to preface this by saying I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not a CPA, although I am a licensed investment advisor. Today I'm not providing any tax or investment advice. I'm simply offering some opinions, and I'm going to attempt to give you a general answer to these questions for educational purposes only, and to encourage you to seek professional help before you make any decisions. Okay, now that that disclaimer's over, let's go. Our first question comes from Brian. Brian says, can you help explain the first paragraph of item 5.02 in the attached SEC Google filing? Brian has a question about the filing because it talks about taking the par value of Google stock and reducing it all the way down to one-tenth of one cent. Essentially, taking 9 billion shares of stock, yeah, that's 9 billion shares of stock, and reducing the quantity down to 500 shares. Now, Brian's really concerned about that. He wonders how that relates to the value of the stock and what all this really means. Well, Brian, you're conflating a couple items here. That statement that you're reading is relating specifically to Google stock, which doesn't exist anymore. Back in 2015, if you remember, Google merged all their operating businesses together and formed a new corporation called Alphabet. And so while we talk about the company Google, it's actually officially named Alphabet, and it has two ticker symbols, one for voting rights, one that doesn't have voting rights. Those ticker symbols are G-O-O-G-L and G-O-O-G. But those represent the company Alphabet, not the company Google, because Google officially at this point is just a brand name and not the name of a corporation. So that K filing that you were reading was talking about how it merged the old stock into the new. A lot of times people in the media and particularly people in alternative media will find little convoluted statements like you were just reading and they use that to scare people and to draw irrational conclusions. Listen, the bottom line is, how do you know what Google's worth? Well, right now it's worth $1,216.98. How do I know that? Because I'm looking at my computer and that's what someone just bought it for. You have to remember, when it comes to stocks or real estate or the value of your Federal Reserve notes, it's all based on confidence. People's perceptions and sentiment shift over time, but the bottom line on the valuation is it's worth whatever you can sell it for today. So your best indication of value is what is the market price? What did someone pay for it in the last transaction? Now, our second question comes from Cody. 
that he's thinking about buying property through a share sale, forfeiture sale, and he wants to know what are the risks involved. Well, Cody, generally the biggest risk to a sheriff's sale is knowing what it specifically does and doesn't mean in the jurisdiction you're in. And what I mean by that is that, you know, a sheriff's sale in Louisiana may not be exactly as the same thing as what a sheriff's sale means in Massachusetts. So make sure you understand specifically what the conditions of sale are. And the reason that's important is because depending upon the jurisdiction, the title may not be totally clean and may still have some liens associated with it. You want to make sure that this property not only has a clear title as it relates to things like local property taxes, but also any type of liens that it may have against it that are typically called like mechanics liens that would be put on there by a general contractor or some other type of tradesman that had a claim against the previous owner of that property. So really the bottom line is, as long as you know that you're getting an absolutely clear title, then the other risks associated with a sheriff's sale are pretty minimal. And those would be things like making sure the property is zoned to do the things that you want to do on it, and that you're aware of the condition of the property, and that there are no hazards associated with the property like past land use that would have caused environmental degradation, and then finally not get caught up in the enthusiasm and the emotions of an auction transaction. In your case, this is an adjacent property, so you're very familiar with the land and the ownership, and it sounds that as long as you can pick this property up for a reasonable price, it's going to add a lot of value to the property that you already own. Now, our third question comes from Nate, and he's asking about the five-year rule on the withdrawal of contributions from a Roth IRA. He says that he's had his Roth IRA for over 10 years now, and the current balance is about $4,000. And he's wondering from an emergency fund standpoint that if he contributes another $5,000 into it today, could he take that money back out immediately if he ran into an emergency situation? Or would he have to wait five more years? Or is it based on back when he opened the fund? Nate, there's a lot of complicated rules and regulations around Roth IRAs, but breaking your question down to its simplest form, I'm going to give you the simplest answer, which is that in a Roth IRA, your contributions can always be withdrawn tax-free and penalty-free regardless of your age or how long the account's been open or virtually any other factor. But key in on what I said, I said your contribution where you may be misinterpreting this question is, is that you started out by stating in your question that the balance in your Roth IRA that's been open for 10 years is currently $4,000. Now, I don't know if you can withdraw that tax and penalty free because I don't know how much of that $4,000 is what you contributed versus how much of a gain may be associated with it. But again, to simply answer your question, any amount that you contribute to a Roth IRA can be withdrawn at any time. The five-year rule applies only to the portion of the IRA that has grown beyond what you've contributed to it. Now, finally, our fourth and last question comes from John in Missouri, and John is asking about what he's calling an early inheritance. He says that his father has stocks and ownership in a local company that he's looking to distribute before he passes away. So John's question revolves around the gift tax and how this relates to the cost basis of that stock. Is the cost basis going to be based on when the father bought it or the value of the stock when he gives it to his children? Well, John, good question, but two separate issues. The gift tax 
which currently has an exemption at $15,000 a year per individual, which means that as an individual, you can receive up to $15,000 from any other one individual and that amount be tax-free. Well, the basis for calculating the value of that gift tax would be on the present value of the stock that you receive. So for gift tax purposes, it's going to look at the actual current present value of whatever the stock is. It doesn't care how much your father would have paid for it 20 years ago. The gift tax is going to be based on the actual market value of the stock on the day that you receive the gift. That's item one. Item two is that once you receive that stock, your cost basis, since you're receiving it while your father is still alive and it's as a gift, your cost basis is the same as what your father would have paid for it when he bought it. However, you're not taxed on that cost basis until you actually sell the stock. So what he's doing is he's transferring ownership to you with his cost basis and with his holding period. But again, that doesn't take effect until you actually sell the stock. So the important thing to remember here is that we're talking about two different tax transactions. One is a possible gift tax. And as long as you stay under the $15,000 minimum each year, you don't have to worry about that. The second item is the capital gains tax that is going to occur not once you receive that stock, but when you actually ultimately sell that stock. And so some things that your father might want to consider is that some of the stocks that he has that have substantial capital gains associated with them, he may want to think about postponing those and rather than giving those as a gift to you, maybe those are things that he is better off leaving to you in his will so that it avoids a capital gains tax. And that could be important in your situation because you did mention that this is a sizable estate. And the other thing to remember is, is that that $15,000 gift tax is per individual. And what that might mean is that if you're married and if your father is married, then there are more individuals involved and therefore potentially more money could get transferred each year if you used a $15,000 limit on each individual and individual contribution. So meaning your father could gift you $15,000 and then his wife, and I say his wife because it doesn't necessarily have to be your mother. And in fact, if they were divorced and the estates were separate, it wouldn't be your mother. But assuming that he's married and his current wife is an owner of his estate, then she could also give you $15,000. And your father could then also give your wife $15,000 and his wife could give your wife $15,000. And so by using that method, the amount that can be transferred is now four times what it would have been. So those are a couple things you want to take into consideration. Well, hey, everybody, thanks for your questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Well, that was pretty awesome to get those four questions. Yeah, there's some audio distortion there. John, who is a podcaster himself, is having some audio difficulties, and he's working through them, but I thought it was certainly good enough, and the content was solid. John, as always, man, thank you for your services, community. You are an incredible asset, and we appreciate the heck out of you. Next, I got a question for Sean Mills on solar power ideas for car campers. Sean, take it away. Hey, TSP community, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and today I have a question for the expert panel for what solar options make sense for car camping. Uh, Derek says, I have a transit van with a 12-volt, 200-amp-hour separate battery bank, but no solar panels yet. I've been trying to figure out what makes sense. My van is tall, so I really don't want to add to that height. Is there something reasonably small and cheap that I can use to recharge my batteries if I don't have shore power? 
I reached out to Derek and asked him some questions, and here's what he sent me back. He said, so for now, I'm not powering very much. A fantastic roof fan, a small cigarette plug fan, a few LED lights, phone charging, occasionally my mother-in-law's CPAP on a 100-watt inverter, and occasionally a laptop on the same inverter. I do have a small generator. It's a Sportsman 1,000-watt inverter generator, but haven't used it so far as we have only boondocked for a night or two at a time and then gone to a regular campground. Space is a premium, and I only like carrying gas on a tow hitch platform that I don't always bring. I am hoping to be able to boondock for more days in a row, hence the thoughts of solar. I can also charge the battery bank by using a charger connected to a 2,000-watt inverter connected to the engine batteries, also two large 12-volt batteries. My alternator is 220 amps, but the wiring is limited to 180 amps. So far, I've only had to do this by, uh, by running the van for an hour uh, when I didn't bring the generator on that trip. I use the big inverter to charge my computer and charge my cordless drills while driving. My wife really wants air conditioning, but I don't think that will work without a bigger generator or maybe while the engine is running. Derek. Well, hey, Derek. Uh, first of all, you're right. Uh, I looked into some uh, conversion van or RV level air conditioning units, and those things are, they don't, they're not small and they don't draw a little bit of electricity. So you're definitely going to have to uh, take a look at if you installed one of those, uh, definitely running it when you've got a generator going. Uh, as a matter of fact, they suggest, the ones I looked at suggested a mini, minimum 30 amp service at 120 volts. So you're looking at in the neighborhood of a 4,500 or 5,000 watt generator to run one of those. So uh, we always want to design our systems based on the worst case scenario. Uh, so let's say you have the CPAP and the fantastic fan running for eight hours a night. Uh, based on the information I was able to find online, that's going to use right about 100 amp hours or 50% depth of discharge on your battery bank. So what we want to do is to ensure that any of the recharging function for laptops and phones happening during the day when the sun's out, right? We want to limit that nighttime usage. Uh, based on this information, 100 amp hours at 12 volts, that's equivalent to 1200 watt hours. You didn't tell me where you are, but I'm going to assume the van boondocking happens during the time of the year when you're getting at least five sun hours per day. And we've talked in the past about what sun hours are. It's not hours of daylight. It's hours of equivalent uh, to essentially noon sun, right? Uh, so I'm not saying you only have five hours of daylight. I'm saying that over the course of a day, you've got the equivalent of five uh, hours of noon sun. So I would suggest that you use three 100-watt panels, uh, 100 watt panels are going to be about 43 inches by 20 inches and weigh about 16 pounds each. Uh, so that's going to make it easy to secure inside the van when you're moving around and easy for you to move outside and hook up when you set up camp. You're going to wire those panels in series. Okay, so we're going to be adding the voltage and you're going to wire those into a 100 volt 30 amp MPPT or maximum power point tracking charge controller. On a day with five sun hours, you can expect to get at least 1200 watts from the system. So basically derating everything to its maximum efficiency losses 
and just getting five sun hours, you're going to get 1200 watts from those three solar panels. So that's going to replace the 1200 watts that you used over the course of the night for the fan and the CPAP. Um, I also like the idea of multiple 100 watt panels because you can use any combination of one, two, or three panels depending on the state of charge of the battery bank. During the times when your mother-in-law isn't with you, you're going to have excess energy so you can dial it in uh, so as not to overcharge the batteries. And during the times when she is, you're likely going to need to top the batteries off with your charger about once a week. Uh, you're probably not going to get enough sun. I mean, in the summer, you might very well, but over the course of a week, drawing that 1,200 watts out every night, you're probably going to need to top those batteries off once a week uh, just to make sure you're preserving um, the battery life there. Now, as I mentioned, you are taking the batteries down to about 50% depth of discharge uh, on those nights where you're running the CPAP as well as the fans. But I would imagine you're probably trading amp hours for space because you've got a limited amount of space. So just know that every three to four years, you're probably going to need to replace those batteries or you're going to start running the charger more often. Well, hey, Derek, thanks again for the question. I hope that answered uh, what, what you were wanting to know. I look forward to seeing some maybe posts on Facebook with that new solar system while you're out there boondocking. If anyone else has any questions, get them in to Jack. I am officially out of questions to answer. Uh, so get those into Jack at the survivalpodcast.com and I'll get the answers out for you. All right, everyone have a great day. Okay, so next up, I have a question for Mike and Sue Laprise on Picky Eaters. Mike, Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Tom from New York. Tom's question, any advice on getting a picky eater to eat healthier and cut the desserts? The biggest issue I think we have is getting her to try something new more than once. From the last sentence of my long details, quote, I don't want to control her. I want to teach her and have her make the right choice. My daughter is 11 and is very sensitive to taste and texture. As a baby, we made her food for her from scratch. Then as she started eating real food, not boiled or blended, she quickly pushed away certain foods. She hates spicy, not just hot, but any strong spice. Anyway, my daughter's mother and I are divorced now, and we have a hard time getting on the same page with food. She tells me she agrees and she's going to cut out certain snacks, but then my daughter, who's honest to a fault, tells me otherwise. So we want to make sure that you understand there's a difference between controlling the environment and not controlling the child. And it's very tempting, and we do it. I'm not saying we don't do it, but we work harder to control the environment versus the child. So forcing a kid to eat creates a lot of stress, resentment, a poor attitude towards food. And um, we've had the opportunity to foster and adopt kids. And so we see this as, you know, when you bring a new kid into your home, you go, what do you like? And for weeks, that's all we have is chicken, nuggets, pizza, hot dogs, you know, all the things they like. And we wean them over to water first. And then we, because they're used to a lot of sweets and soda. And it's, I mean, our first herd of kids that we got, the three kids, they love to eat. So they switched up quickly and got out in the garden and they love to eat. And our next three were tiny, skinny little guys. Very, and Very fearful, very anxious. Yeah. And so. And it uh, made me anxious. 
because they were so skinny. Right. And so up front, usually when you get kids like that, all they want is chicken nuggets, pizza, hot dogs. Um, and then you slowly develop what they're going to eat. And so one of the things that we do to adjust the eating, so in our house, one of the things is we go through a lot of water. We have a Berkey, a very large one, and we go through about five gallons of water a day. Uh, so we try to keep out the, the sugary stuff. We don't have sodas in the house except for special occasions. Um, we usually don't have a lot of sweets. So um, eating healthy, a lot of time it's a matter of what's in your house. Right, so the food that you have in your house is what your kids can eat. Um, unless you live in the city, they can go out and walk down the street and buy yeah. something at the corner <laughs> store. Uh, but like out where we live, what our kids are going to eat is what we grow in the yard and what we have in the house. So part of that is selecting what's in the house. And that's part of the controlling the environment. So then the way to get kids to eat new food, it's really fun. It's an adventure. So today we went over to my mom's garden because we're not gardening that much this year because I have three more kids and we ate off her mulberry tree the kids tried peas and they're trying all these things and man you can just spit them out on the ground if you don't like dill or fennel or, or all the little things you can taste and it's just really fun and exciting and it exposes them to all these things and then you start bringing those into the house and making things with them. So my kids didn't like rosemary and we made bread with rosemary and suddenly oh we like rosemary and we've also used books like the Chronicles of Narnia and we made Turkish delight and different things from movies. When my older kids were little, we watched a lot of Alton Brown and now we do a lot of YouTube food channels. And then whatever our history theme is for the week, we'll make a meal around that with some friends often. Like the kids got to, I made escargot and it looks fabulous and it smells fabulous. It, it tastes horrible. But the garlic and butter was great. And they wouldn't try it. I did. I don't blame them for not trying it. Um, we've added Indian food into our regular meals. And then they've even had, like, super boring English food. Yes. And so part of that is just exposing them to the food and letting them try it and then letting them say no. Now, foods that our kids like, so there's the issue of manipulation. And sometimes kids will say, I don't want to eat. I don't like that. We know what foods our kids like. And so if it's something that they normally eat and then they're saying, I don't like that, I don't want to eat, it's like, well, this is what we're having for dinner. You know, with, with 10 kids, not all of them living at home, but we've got six kids at home, um, we can't make individual meals for six different kids. Yeah. So we, we, we say, here's what we're having for dinner, and this is what we're having. And so if you'd like to eat it, here's what we have. Yeah, and my little guy likes to complain. He complained this morning, and I just took his second helping, and I just... Dropped it in the trash. is like, okay, you're done. So we actually don't have picky eaters because um, I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. It's There's too much to do. I don't want to sit around in the kitchen waiting for somebody to finish or cook a dozen meals for everybody's individual meal. Yes. And so like we said, we know what they like to eat, and we start expanding that. And as we expand that, we know what things that they like in the expansion part. If nobody likes something that we're trying new, we move on, but uh, Sue and yeah, I'm and, never making escargot again. Yes, and Sue and my and my uh, daughter Jessica are great cooks, and so they make a lot of great meals that everybody likes. And yeah, so, and we'll say like, here's one Brussels sprout, and it's loaded with cream cheese and bacon and cheese. This really great Irish cheddar, 
And then one or one kid will lick it because he likes the outside <laughs> stuff, but he won't eat the Brussels sprout, which is fine. It's that exposure and trying things that's really important. Yes. And then the next issue you, you talked about was desserts and having desserts and the difficulty of having that. So for us, I would say don't have it. Now, we do desserts. We, we're, we're normally we're, a holiday dessert family, and we yeah. don't have desserts in between. Yes. And when we got the last three littles, um, because they were so skinny and Sue was trying to encourage them to eat more. I was stra- more, anxious. And yeah. Sue was stressed and anxious. Um, she would start saying, if you eat your food, I'll give you dessert. And so Sue was buying desserts. Well, over time, that's actually unhealthy, not just the fact that they're eating so much, but the thought of if I eat this meal, at the end I get this big sugary treat. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bad mindset. I know, and I gained 10 pounds. It was really bad all around. So the last thing, <laughs> oh, well, the one thing I want to say is your children's palates are all different too. So we have a kid who will eat habanero stuff and we until he has diarrhea. I mean, he just loves it. And he's two. I don't understand, but that's the way his palate is. He'll eat spicy then, foods. He'll eat crushed yeah, red peppers, yeah. jalapenos. And, yes. And then the four-year-old thinks spaghetti spicy. <laughs> and it's boring spaghetti that I make. And we add stuff to it after we've served the kids. So um, you got to understand everybody's different. Even adults are different. And that's okay. That's part of life. And as they grow, their palates expand. Right. So one of the things is with our children, I can see we had one of our daughters was a chicken nugget person, really kind of ironic she all that's all she would basically eat was chicken nuggets and french fries when we go out to eat um and now she's allergic to chicken so when she found that out she goes great my favorite food and i'm allergic to yeah. it so but her palate is developed you know she's in her mid-20s now and they eat lots of food so as your kids get older their palates will develop they'll try if encouraging them to try new foods and getting in the habit of trying new foods as they get older the palates will develop. They'll eat more things. And sometimes kids won't eat something because it makes them not feel good. Like they have um, – their body doesn't like that food. And so that's another reason not to force food on kids and allow them to make their own choices. So there's a huge emotional component to eating. You guys all know this. But as a parent, I have to remind myself of that, that um, for whatever reason – we all feel differently about foods and their tastes and their connection. I'm a social eater. As long as we're around people talking, I will continue to eat. And, and I'm a stressful <laughs> eater. So if I'm in a stressful environment, if work's really stressful, I find myself eating and I find myself snacking, which I generally try not to do. And so I've got to be cognizant of that in, in my environment that, oh, I'm, I'm feeling stress. I need to try to bring the stress level down so that I'm not putting on the pounds. Yeah, and so we don't want to project those on our kids. And then the other thing is this family, the the dads, they're divorced, and so the the ex-wife doesn't do what he does. But, again, you can't control her either. So let her do whatever she wants. And if you really need help because this is becoming a stressful thing, we'd recommend a psychologist or somebody who does therapy without medication. Yes. And so um, I would say we'll leave it with this. Um Eat healthy, fix your environment, so what you have going on in the house. If the food that's in the house is what's being eaten, if you're putting in healthy food, your child will eat healthy. And I know it can be a struggle, um, but you can overcome this. We've over, over, overcome that with uh, 10 different children. So uh, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Um, back to you, Jack.
So the divided family makes this so much more difficult. It, it really does. So I don't want to minimize that too much. But Mike and Sue's answers are great, and I, the, the, they are correct in that you can you can ask the mother to do certain things, but in the end, you control the environment in your home when the child's there. So focus on the environment. If garbage is in there, then all the pleading in the world will not make you give her the garbage food to eat. And kids kind of wise up the situations pretty quickly and are manipulative and even if they don't directly know it they indirectly know that they can leverage these split family situations because no one wants to be the bad guy you need to remember that by making sure that your child eats quality food and it develops good dietary habits you are not the bad guy you are in fact the good guy you may be the bad guy in her eyes for a little bit but that is okay It is okay to be seen as the bad guy as long as you are actually the good guy. Uh, next up, I completely agree with, I, I do not believe in forcing children to eat. I don't have to force children to eat. Uh, our creator made us with something that eventually will force us to eat called hunger. And I think that one of the biggest problems that parents have disciplining children, not just with this, but in so many things, is we have this, we talked about snowplow parenting yesterday, an inability to allow a child to experience discomfort. We can't do it. And we need to be able to do it because it works. It is the most effective training tool on planet Earth, especially when it comes to eating anyway, because all we have to do is nothing. So I, I am with, I will not cook a meal. Now, now I'm a grandparent, right? So it's not every day, but I will not cook a meal that has only food in it that I know my child will never eat. I will cook a meal with food in it that my child has eaten before and will eat and generally is okay eating. Maybe it's not their favorite, but they're okay eating it. And I will go beyond, well, that's what's for dinner tonight. I will I will go, that is fine. Here's your plate of food. Do you want it? No? Okay. And I now I have to find a different place because the way our cabinet tree is built, it can't go on the refrigerator. When my son was young, it was called the top of the refrigerator method. Your food will be here. When you're hungry, you let me know, and I will give you your food. But it'll be cold. We'll microwave it for you. But it, it won't taste good later. Well, it tastes good now. Maybe you should eat it now. Well, I'm not going to eat it. Okay, but what if I get hungry later? Your food's up there. I will microwave it for you. But what if I want something else? Your food is up there. I will microwave it for you and walk away and sit down and eat. Don't get angry. Remember, you're in control. The reason parents yell, they forget they're in control, and they fail to exercise the control. So you make your child uncomfortable by yelling at them instead of letting their decisions make them uncomfortable. You never want to be the one that makes them uncomfortable. You want to be the enabler that allows them to experience discomfort by their own choice, discomfort which they can end any time they choose to end it. And that makes things really easy. And, well, what if my kid doesn't eat anything that day? Great, you'll have no problem getting them to eat breakfast the next day. Because I'm going to tell you where you won't find a picky eater. Ethiopia. You won't find a picky eater in Ethiopia in the middle of the desert. They'll eat whatever they can get. There are children that line up, and this isn't the old speech that your your mother gave you. There's kids in a ditch somewhere or whatever. Kids in Africa would be happy to have a food. True, but it doesn't help make the kid eat. This is for the parent, not for the kid. There is a place in Africa that I read about where children line up every day for a medical uh, examination and to be weighed. And when the child is deemed healthy, often the child cries. Because there's only so much available of a, of a nutritional supplement. And until the child is sick enough and has lost enough weight, they're out of the ration to receive it. So when the child is told they're healthy, they cry. Okay. What that means is if your kid goes 24 hours without food, they will be fine. And they will learn to eat. 
And that is that is the, the number, like, okay, I like liken this. I'm very good with dogs. Caesar, the dog whisperer guy, right? Um, he says, I don't train dogs, I train owners. The main problem that parents have is not their children, it's their parenting. And this is why I say we don't need to hit children. I control when they eat, when they go to bed, what they eat, where they live, what stuff. I mean, I have every means of control. I have every means of control in the situation. And they only have a limited amount of control they can exercise. And I have enough control that if they want to exercise the control not to eat today, I'm okay with that. If they want to exercise the control that, okay, this is what we're doing, and they want to be miserable and sour-faced and whatever, I'm okay with that. You can do that. As long as you don't ruin it for anybody else, you can sit in the corner and be angry. It works so quickly. But parents cave. I saw my wife do it one time with my grandnieces, and I'm like, what are you doing? The two little girls were with her out in the swimming pool. Something came up. I don't even remember what it was, but the older one, who's really a bratty little girl, a whiny, bratty little girl who cries to get what she wants all the time, went into the house. And, and Grandma stood up and said, if you want to go inside, go inside. She came in. She climbed up on one of the bar stools at the kitchen bar, and she sat there. And she waited. And you know what she waited for? She waited for my wife to come get her and placate her and pacify her. And I could see her getting ready. You know, it's been five minutes maybe. Maybe maybe somewhere between five and ten minutes. I can see her about to get off the stool, and I go to pick my phone up because I know it's going to happen, and I'm going to text my wife, do not come get her. She is fine. She will be back soon. Just as I started typing it, the door opens. There's my wife. I'm like, what are you doing? Just let the choice be made. Let them have this little bubble choice. This is an all, not just food, all things. As long as it's not detrimental to the overall happiness of the home, it's not detrimental to the lesson, and as long as they are choosing the unhappiness, then the lesson is you are unhappy, here is how you change that for yourself. Then you develop a child who is adaptive to life and can be there. And the food stuff, I noticed that a lot of kids in that kind of five to ten year range, they develop a concept where anything that actually has flavor they don't appreciate. They don't like it. They want bland. Let them have bland. Just make sure there's something there that they can eat. And if they don't eat that, let them be hungry. I promise you, nature will fix the problem. The problem is the solution. They're hungry. Yeah, don't mess that up. Let them stay hungry until the problem rectifies itself. Next, we have an update on the grass-fed life of the Simpson family farm from Darby Simpson. Hey there everyone, Darby Simpson of the TSP Expert Council calling in this week not to answer any specific questions but to give you a farm update and a grass-fed life update. Our farm is really getting ready to take off here. It is green outside, the grass is bustling and we are going to continue regenerating lots and lots of soil this year. We've got um, a field we converted last year from a, a row crop soybean field. We, we planted an annual sorghum Sudan grass in that and grazed it. Um, we're going to do some more annuals this year, graze it again, and disc all that up and then put a permanent seed bed in this fall. And if you want to know more about that and follow along with that, I would encourage you to check out the podcast over at Grassfed Life. We're tracking that. Uh, we're, we're tracking the data, test, te testing the, uh, the, the organic matter in the soil as we progress and, and looking at how much production we're getting off of that ground. 
really taking a very strategic look about how we can best regenerate soil quickly and get it productive, up and going, and profitable on our farm. So again, if you want to follow along with that, you can check out GFL episode number 100. We'll have an update coming out here on that soon, and we'll have another update uh, on it later this fall as well. Over on the grass-fed life side, we have got a lot of exciting things going on. If you haven't heard about it already, uh, if you're interested in in learning more from grass-fed life, check out the grass-fed life Insider. You can check that out at grassfedlife.co backslash insider. Uh, that is a very, very inexpensive uh, method we have come up with to help people progress on their farms. Uh, we've already got like close to 40 hours of content in the Insider. And here's the neat part. We're adding to it each and every week, every week of the year. We're putting something new out there. We've got videos. We've got screencasts. We've got interviews that aren't heard anywhere else. Uh, you get your audio questions answered uh, direct from me in a private podcast uh, every few weeks or so. Uh, so go and check that out again. If you're interested in learning very inexpensively how to do things on your farm, whether it's homesteading or for profit, I would strongly encourage you to check out the Grassfed Life Insider. It's just this huge library. And the neatest part is you get to help us build it. Like whatever your interests are, whatever we see these questions coming in on, that's how we're detailing the information going forward in terms of what we're cranking out, what we're producing. Case in point, we had a number of questions come in on brooder management. So we we did a, a short podcast all on brooder management one week. That's all we covered was brooder management because people in the insider audience had questions on that. So it's a co-development and helps support the podcast to help us keep producing additional free content on the podcast. Again, Grass-Fed Life Insider, it's only 5 bucks a month or $49 a year. Also, I know a lot of you are familiar with our full Farm Business Essentials online course, and we've actually... Uh, added something to that as well here recently. You no longer have to buy the full course all at one time. Uh, we've actually got a couple of different payment options out there now. Uh, the most popular one of which is a, a monthly subscription that you can sign up for, only 49 bucks a month. Best part is no long-term commitments. You can sign up, use it for a month. If you don't like it, you can turn it off. If you want to use it for a few months to, to get what you need out of it, during the growing season and then shut that off, you can do that as well. We just want to make this more accessible to more people. This is a lot deeper content, obviously, than the Insider, a lot more in-depth uh, analysis in terms of enterprise selection and spreadsheets and running a business and making sure you're profitable and, and a lot more nitty-gritty how to raise animals for profit. Uh, we cover all kinds of stuff in that, again, above and beyond what we're doing in the Insider. But if you want to go deeper... Check that out. Again, 49 bucks a month to get access to 23 modules with myself and my business partner, Diego Footer. Um, out on the website, you can, you can check that out again at, again at grassfedlife.co if you're interested in that. Of course, you still got the, the, the full Farm Business Essentials course, but if you, if you do the subscription, uh, model, you can also, you know, apply all those credits towards the full course and eventually you just have the, the whole full course lifetime content all paid in full. You get all the benefits there on that as well. We've also got some additional content coming out soon. We did a workshop out in California with Paul Grieve of Pasture Bird and Primal Pastures. 
that was an absolute blast. Had about 20 people out in Southern California for a long weekend, about two and a half days. Phenomenal workshop out at Paul's place. Paul is going to produce nearly a half million pastured birds this year. They are shipping to 11 western U.S. states. Amazing daily shift, moving the birds every day on pasture, regenerating the soil. Phenomenal chicken. We got to have it for dinner one night. We're going to have about a six-hour online course with Paul that's going to be coming out here in the next few weeks, uh, again, at grassfedlife.co. This really gets deep into scaling up in terms of equipment and labor, uh, cost analysis, that kind of thing, but also Paul gets into how to distribute things, how to line up distributors, how to work with chefs on a massive scale, how to ship I mean, there's like an hour and a half, two hours just on shipping and distribution. So if you're serious about scaling your business up, this is something you definitely want to check out. And I'll mention if you're a, a grass-fed life insider, we're going to have a special offer on that, kind of an internal Kickstarter, if you will. Our insiders get discounts on any of our online courses, but there's going to be an additional discount for insiders coming up shortly on this workshop we're going to be putting out with Paul. So if you're interested in that, watch for news on it again at grassfedlife.co. Uh, check out the free weekly podcast, too. We don't just have paid-for content. We've got a lot of free content out there. That The paid content helps to produce the free content so we can keep helping people move forward, regenerating the land. That's really what we're all about at the end of the day is educating, helping people to grab uh, a little piece of liberty in their lives with their farms, no matter if it's a, a tenth of an acre in suburbia or if you've got uh, a few acres you know, out or if you've got a farm or ranch, whatever, you know, from, from small to large and anything in between, we want to help educate you, help you be as self-sufficient and profitable as possible. Check out those resources, guys. Thanks for support us, supporting us uh, all these years. And as always, please send me some questions. I love coming on here, answering questions for you guys. So send those in to uh, Jack. He'll kick them over to me, and I'll be happy to answer them for you on an upcoming uh, expert council session. As always, everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care. And again, thanks for checking us out at Grassfed Life. You know, my big thing there is I just think it is so amazing to hear about that level of production. I've been on uh, pieces of property where I've felt like it could be done, you know, and if, if somebody really wanted to develop that level of production. And the thing is that there, there's a challenge there that Darby didn't really talk about, but I'm sure they talk about in all the resources. There is a point which... You can produce more than you can sell in a limited channel, but you're not big enough for what you would call an unlimited channel. Or to get into that unlimited channel, you have to sell so cheap because you're so small that now you're losing money. But there's a tipping point when it comes to agricultural production uh, where you get to a certain volume and you have a lot of power and a lot of control because now you can sell into the, 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 the entire you know, North American level food channel. And once you get there, you, you, you really... It, it, I'm not saying overproduction is not possible, but 
you're not going to overproduce as an individual. We'd have to have so many people do this to get into that situation. Uh, they, literally, at that point, we would have kind of gotten rid of the chicken farms, the ch typical chicken house chicken farms. Uh, and can you, can you just pause for a second in whatever you're doing? If you're driving, please pay attention to the road, right? But can you just pause for a second whatever you're doing and think about a piece of land with a half a million pastured birds being produced on it a year. Pastured birds. And what is happening to that soil and that ecosystem as a whole. And if, if you needed something to maybe give you a little bit of hope on a Friday afternoon, how about that? All right, let's take my question today. And it's going to actually fit remarkably well uh, in with my comments on uh, parenting from the last segment. This comes from Earl. I've already answered Earl by, uh, by email because I thought this was important and I had a product to recommend. Uh, for him, so I gave him that. I said, read my entire review on this product and then ask me any more questions you have. I haven't heard back, so I guess he, I gave him enough information. Uh, but I wanted to cover this on the air for him and for other people that may have to deal with this. He says, I have a question about training a dog that is aggressive toward power tools and firearms. I have a 15-month-old German Shepherd that has been in our family since eight weeks old, came from a very good breeder, so abuse is not concerned. Uh, it's a younger puppy. He did not respond to firearms much to my pleasure. However, my last trip to camp, he began to act aggressive when a firearm was being fired. Luckily, he was still tied on a runner, but he was aggressively barking and lunging toward the firearms. He has in the past currently exhibited similar behaviors toward chainsaws, weed eaters, and vacuums. Um, he has attempted to bite chainsaws and weed eaters while they are running. If he is too close, he is easy to calm once the stimulus is removed. Any suggestions? I want to eventually be able to let him off a runner, but I do want to harm him accidentally. Thanks for everything, Earl in Central PA. The product I'm going to recommend for training here is the Dogtra Electric <clears throat> Training Collar. And you can get a lower-priced item. What I like about the Dogtra is it has well over a 100 settings and they simply start at one and go up i think it's 137 and what this is is an electric collar it has a little thing with some electrodes that stick out and you put it on the dog as a regular collar and those electrodes touch the neck and when you push a button it sends a small electric shock to the dog it hurts it doesn't feel good it's analogous to being hit by an electric fence of varying levels At level one, if you put this thing on your bare, wet hand and push the button, you can't even really detect that it's there. As you go up, it hurts more and more and more. And this is what I like. I believe that if we are to use physical correction on an animal, it should be the minimal necessary to gain the desired response. The only thing that I want this collar to do is make the decision uncomfortable. I don't want it to really hurt the animal. I want it to be uncomfortable enough that the animal decides for itself, I don't want to do this anymore. This is a bad decision. So, for instance, when I did this with Charlie, I started out with like 20, very low, no response. Up to 30, no response. Like 37 or whatever it was. Like, And I was going up by, once I got to like 30, I'm going up by one digit. And he did something I didn't want him to do. And up till now, I'm just kind of letting it go. I'm just finding out where his number is. Yipe! Okay, there it is. Now we've got your attention. So now we can engage in the offending activity, and we can say no and then give the correction. And it's that simple. And if you do this, your dog will get through its thick skull that this is a bad thing to do. 
So let me give you some advice. Let's start off by taking one of the dangerous stimuli, a chainsaw or a weed eater, and let's render it harmless so that no accidents can happen. Now, mom, dad, the kids, everybody is at ease because we know that Rover is not going to get its face cut open or its head chopped off. We know that can't happen. We either take the chain off the chainsaw and we run an empty bar so it just makes noise because the dog hears noise. We take the weed eater string out of the weed eater and, bang, and we run it, okay? And we set the dog down. We do not put the dog on a leash. We do not restrain the dog. If we restrain the dog in this environment, now the dog's trying to get away and either a physical restraint or my arm is holding the dog back. That means I'm giving the dog resistance. The dog has something to fight. The impetus is higher to fight than it is to stop fighting. Okay? So we're going to set the dog down. We're going to tell the dog stay. When we start operating the implement, as the dog advances, we're going to tell the dog no, no, no. And when he gets close enough, boop, we're going to hit him with a shock. This is going to get his attention, and he's going to probably back off, run away, and freak out. Immediately, the device needs to stop running. The dog needs to be comforted. Hey, Rover, come on over here. Roll my no, don't do that. Now, our partner turns the offending device on again. No. Nine times out of ten, we are done with the shock at that point. That thing hurts. I don't like Now I'm just still interested in it. No. And as we get approach, we're going to get a much more cautious approach. If we get a very aggressive approach, we're going to zap them again. Maybe we dial the, the, the sequence up a little bit. It depends on are we getting if we're getting a yipe, but then the dog learns to power through it, we're going to increase the discomfort. And within two, two, three shocks, in a variety of, and don't do this for too long, in a variety of situations, the dog is going to now associate this behavior of being aggressive toward this thing that he's getting the no command. And you've got to make sure the dog understands the command no before you begin this level of training. You have to be able to take things where the dog has more self-discipline. He maybe wants to go somewhere and you say no and he hears you and you say sit, he sits. You get the dog there with lesser stimuli. Now there's no reason that dog doesn't understand the command no or stay or whatever it is you use to control your dog. So now we are going to get a dog that is very... I don't know about this. I still don't like this thing. It makes noise. It's near my owner. It might hurt my owner. I got to do something, but uh, my owner's telling me no. And when I do this, I get this pain in my neck. I don't like it. So now the dog is going to be tentative. When we get to the tentative point, on the remote control is a thing that says vibrate. This causes no pain whatsoever. This is like when you have your phone in your pocket and you have it on silent and vibrate and your phone goes off. It's just like that. You can put it on your arm and vibrate it all you want. It will not hurt you. It does not hurt your dog. It does say, hey, Rover, remember me? I'm here. We need to fix this problem together because I don't want to hurt you. Right? This is the canine brain. They're in the now. The dog brain is mostly... 95% in the now. So we have to drag enough of the past to make the now controlled concept. So now the dog is approaching. We tell Rover no. Rover does anything other than back off or ignore the situation altogether. Vibration. And that's all we'll take is vibration. And Rover will be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember this. Now we want to move on to firearms. My advice is to get 
or borrow a gas blowback airsoft gun. You don't even need pellets in it. It's probably better that you don't have them. But it will be about as loud as, you know, a, 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 a 22 firing 22 longs, right? Pat, uh, pat, pat, pat. So we're going to take that and we're going to go through the same exercise. One person is going to sit there and fire the airsoft gun. And we're going to put the, 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 uh, the collar on the dog. And we're going to use the vibrate setting as long as it works. We are only going to use the shock setting when vibrate doesn't work. We are always going to give the dog the command of no first. And our goal isn't to get the dog to where it, it's like amped up but being good. Our goal is to get the dog to the point where the dog doesn't even care. So we are going to do this in small sessions over time. And what we're going to do is, as the dog gives us what we want, we're going to give the dog what it wants. The dog wants affection. The dog wants affection and reassurances. We are not going to be petting the dog and telling him he's a good boy while he's amped up. But when we get to the point where the dog just kind of sits there and looks, then the person that was running the remote is going to go over and pet the dog and get the dog down on the ground. And while the other person is shooting the gun or running the weed eater or whatever, you got the dog on his back, you're scratching his belly, you pick up his ball or his favorite toy, you play retriever with him, he does that thing. Hey, wait a minute, this thing is meaningless to my life. This thing only causes me discomfort if I engage with it. And my human's not worried about it, so I shouldn't be worried about it. The reason people have so much trouble with this is because they use some sort of restraint and then they get really worried and really nervous and then your energy goes really bad. You get really amped up, like, like almost like when you're going to get a fight with somebody and you've got this weird energy running through you that you can't detect and no one else can detect, but the dog can detect it like as though the dog was wearing special glasses and can see the color of your aura change between your smell They can, they can sense your heart rate. A dog can hear your heart beating and sense the change in the beating of your heart. It can tell that you're stressed. It can tell that you're sweating. So as you amp up, the dog's like, oh, crap, I knew this was bad. I knew this was bad. Man, oh, I got to stop this thing. I got to get this thing before it gets my owner. I got to stop it. But if you are calm... Even when the dog is worked up, the dog is still picking up on the fact that you don't really give a shit about this thing. It's not worth worrying about. Once we get the dog to where the dog can handle the airsoft gun, now we can go out somewhere into the field with something like a blank gun or a place where we can safely shoot, where we can make sure that we're shooting high enough that the dog can't possibly get to it, and we're going to work on that again until the dog doesn't care anymore. And once you're there, you're there. Now, This is why I'm going to tell you to do exactly what I said to the T. This, there is zero theory in what I just gave you and 100% practice. This is why Charlie doesn't eat weed eaters. We probably need to do some reinforcement training on the vacuum cleaner because he still gets upset. He doesn't actually bite it, though. He just chases Dorothy around with a vacuum. Right? Outside weed eaters, chainsaws, etc., he just doesn't bother. Airsoft guns doesn't bother. This is exactly how I broke him. Because he would attack weed eaters, he would attack, attack chainsaws, the same shit. And he would attack guns. In fact, we were doing one of the workshops here. We were shooting airsoft guns. I had 50 students here. The dogs as worked up as he could be. And he started jumping at the airsoft guns. Hold on, guys. We're doing some reinforcement training right now. Got the collar. Put it on him. Never shocked him. Just a vibrate. 
And because Charlie understands what the collar does, you have to decide in your training and your dog and your goals, do you want the dog to know the collar is the issue or not? You can put the collar on the dog, leave it on him for days, and only use it when the dog behaves. And then the behavior is the problem. I wanted a dog that listened and understood I was in control with Charlie, so I, he knows what the collar did. So I would vibrate him when I had to, but there were times when he would like, yeah, I don't, I still, and I would just say Charlie, and I'd hold up the remote and show it to him. He's like, oh yeah, okay. And then I go, see, as soon as I get that compliance, good boy, come here. As soon as you get that compliance, as soon as that dog relaxes, as soon as that dog's energy's right, then you, you say, yeah, good boy. And he says, you know what? That thing's, that, that, that's not dangerous. That's something they use. I'm going to go hang out with them while they're doing that. It will take time. It will not happen in a day. But the difference you can make in a day will strike you. It, it really will. You, it will amaze you. And you might have to shock your dog a half dozen times. Maybe ten. But if you have to do more than that, you're not following the progression of training that I gave you. Because once the dog associates the behavior with the discomfort... The, the, the vibration on that throat to that dog is enough to say, yeah, I don't want to do that again. And I'll say one last thing about this product. If you just put this on a dog, and every time a dog does something you don't want done, you just shock the shit out of your dog, you are a shitbag. So I do not want this to be a license for someone to abuse this. This is a training tool. It should be a small portion of your training that has a maximum effect. If I caught somebody... Just shocking a dog whenever the dog did anything they want without doing any reinforcement training, and they were just using it as a strict control method. I would hold that person down, use a broomstick to insert that thing in that person's ass, set it to 137 or whatever it is, and randomly push the button while they try to get it out. Because I do not believe in the abuse of animals in any way, shape, or form. And using this tool has to be done with an extreme sense of responsibility. But I would rather the dog, once or twice or three or four times or whatever it takes for him to learn, have a mild electric shock and feel discomfort than one time bite the bar of a running chainsaw. And anybody that doesn't understand that, I cannot help you. All right. So there will be a link to that product in the show notes today, and you can check it out and see if that's something that you, uh, that you want to use in your training. Remember, I have the free resource out today, the Excel course that I'm recommending you guys check out. Uh, that's in the blog today, and it'll be in the daily email. And remember, you can always support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, the article on the dog trick collar that will be linked in the show notes today, that is a, um, a, a product for T-Spaz that I've reviewed. But my item of the day for you today is the German-style fermentation crock. Uh, for those of you that like to do lacto-fermentation, I brought this yesterday, but I didn't put it on the air because we had a long episode. So I wanted to put it on air for you today because it's on sale. Uh, this is a The 5 liter is kind of my go-to size for this. This is a great fermenter for fermenting fermented vegetables or sauerkraut, stuff like that. The way it works is it's, first of all, it's ceramic, so it's very good with temperature control. It's got a, a rim around the lid that you fill with water, and the, the, the lid sits in that rim and has two little places where air can vent out while it's fermenting. So it's effectively an airlock. The reason I brought it around is this thing sells for 80 bucks. It's one of those things people have on their wish list. Someday I'm going to get one because 80 bucks is kind of pricey. It's on sale right now for $52 for the 5 liter. 52 bucks. 
And a five liter fermenter uh, is 1.3 gallons. That's a lot of sauerkraut or escabeche. Uh, if you check out my review, I give you my recipe for my escabeche, and it is fantastic. The 10 liter is also on sale. It's normally $100. bucks, It's $70. And they now have a two liter, which I think for a lot of people will be a great size. It's $35. bucks. It's not on sale. All of them ship free on Amazon. And remember, when you shop tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, Uh, through my website. It doesn't matter what you buy. One way or another, you do help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. But I know a lot of you, I, I've seen a lot of people, one day I'm going to get one of these. This would be a good time to pick one up. I don't know how long the sale will last on them. They also come with ceramic fermentation weights to hold the things under. I own this product. Again, this is one of those things. It's, 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 it's practice. It's not theory. I own this product. I use this product. I love this product, or I wouldn't recommend it. Everything on T-SPAS. Everything. I've spent my money on it. If I would not spend my money on it, I wouldn't suggest that you do. That brings us to our song of the day today. Song of the day today is Thunderstruck by ACDC. First of all, I love ACDC. Um, just absolutely always loved ACDC's music. Love this song. There was a uh, Arena League football uh, team uh, when I worked in Frisco, Texas called the Frisco Thunder. This was their theme song. Uh, and the one year I bought season tickets to all, I think it was 12 games. I took my son and my wife and you know whatever friend was available to go with my son that week to this uh, this Arena League football. We had like great seats right down on the, the front end, and it, they'd always come out and start that, ah, ah, you know. So like that was a good memory for me. So that's part of why I like this song. Uh, in fact, one day I ended up uh, hit in the chest by a tight end that ran out in the flat, full speed, went over the rail and planted his freaking helmet into my chest, and ended up laying on my wife's lap. Um, I hadn't been hit like that since high school uh, in, in playing football. So, yeah, uh, that was kind of cool, too. But why are we? what are we doing this week with music? Obscure Music Trivia Week, right? Like, so what is obscure about Thunderstruck? Well, a while ago, I don't remember the year exactly, I have the uh, link to the story about it in, uh, in the show notes today. But so I'll pull it up real quick. Uh, hackers hacked into Iranian uh, nuclear facilities where they were you know, spinning centrifuges and making nuclear fuel and destroyed them. This was between 2009 and 2010. Uh, devastating cyber attack. A virus reportedly developed by... It's reportedly developed by American and Israeli governments and known as uh, Stunek, uh, Stuxnet, uh, took control of centrifuge controls and facilities across the country, causing thousands of machines to break. So they basically shut down a nuclear program by blowing it up. You know, I know we think of ourselves as the good guys, but could you imagine the outrage if somebody did that to us? We'd call it what it is, an act of terrorism, right? Uh, cyber terrorism. Um, but apparently the attackers were not content with just scribbling the country's nuclear efforts. They wanted to show their control another way to do that. They reportedly hijacked the facility's workstations and used them to play ACDC Thunderstruck, and they played it loud. Speaking at a Black Hat security conference, Finnish computer security expert Mikko Hoban uh, recalled an email he received from an Iranian scientist at the time of the Stuxnet attacks. Uh, this is what the guy said. There was also some music playing randomly on several workstations during the middle of the night with the volume maxed out. I believe it was the American band ACDC Thunderstruck. It was all very strange. It happened very quickly. The attackers also managed to gain root access to the machine they entered from and remove all the logs. So regardless of how you feel about it politically, the answer to the question, what music was blared loudly, loudly during the Iranian nuclear hack, 
Thunderstruck by ACDC. On a happier note, I just think this is a badass song to go into a weekend with. If you're driving down a back road or something like that, be careful. This is the kind of song that makes that foot on the accelerator get a little bit heavy. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough for you to know. You bitch!